Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. One story dominated Wall Street this week and the business world and the world itself. The coronavirus made its presence known even as it spread in ways detected and undetected, and the markets reacted violently, raising for some the question whether we're on the brink of another 2008 Great Recession, something Bloomberg Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers weighed in on. Another way I like to think about it is we're at a moment like where we were after Bear Stearns. That wasn't yet where we were after uh, Lehman, but it was a pretty critical moment. And in retrospect, the time was largely wasted. And it would have been better if we had acted much more promptly. Uh, I don't think there is uh, time uh, to lose. To help us sort out the reaction from the overreaction, we convene now our Wall Street Week roundtable with Bob Diamond of Atlas Merchant Capital. Bob, of course, was the CEO of Barclays in the aftermath of the great financial crisis. And Rick Reeder of BlackRock, where he is chief investment officer for global fixed income. But he's not just a bond guy. He also is lead portfolio manager for BlackRock's multi-sector fund. So, Rick... Bob, welcome. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Bob, let me start with you. you st- I think you took over Barclays in 2010 or so, so just, yeah. just as we were getting into the great financial crisis. Uh, what are the differences and similarities? I mean, Larry was careful in saying we're not yet yeah. the layman, but we may be a bear servants. I mean, there's similarities in terms of fear, uh, but I think there are more differences. I mean, 2008 was a banking crisis. It was a liquidity crisis. It was a solvency for many institutions in, in financial services. And you know, particularly in the U.S. today, I don't think we could have a stronger uh, banking system uh, from capital levels and you know, all the way through. Um, and I think right now, obviously, it's a health crisis, number one. 
but in terms of the impact in the economy, uh, my sense is that we are dramatically underestimating the impact in the near term in terms of the economy. Um, and we may be overestimating the medium to long term, and that's very dependent on um, any resolution to, to the health crisis. Um, I think secondly, um, while this isn't a, uh, um, I don't think anyone would think of this as a banking crisis, one of the things we're all trying to figure out is how can the banks be part of the solution? They're definitely not part of the problem. Uh, and then lastly, I'd say, David, is I think, you know, when I look at the fault points, um, if I look down the road, I can easily envision a significant bounce in the equity markets because, you know, I think um, uh, the near-term impact on the economy could potentially unwind over time. But I think when you look at the low end of the U.S. dollar corporate credit market, um, I think that may be more permanent in terms of, of um, loss of value. So, Rick, I wonder if one difference might be uh, not very advantageous, and that is this. We had a level of cooperation, even across the aisle in 2008, and between fiscal and monetary authorities uh, that we seem to lack right now. Uh, people say we should be coordinated. It doesn't feel very coordinated to what the government's doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, first of all, I would say one thing, that crises tend to bring people together, and so I think you'll see a bit more of that, but you're right, heretofore, you haven't really seen that. Listen, I, I think, you know, people like to, you know, say in the markets, we like to grasp onto history because it gives us a pretty good playbook for how to think about this going forward. But, you know, it's interesting. Every time you have one of these disruptions, it's different than the mm -hmm. one before, and they're usually the reason why they're so potent in terms of how they hit the markets is you can't really go back and say, how did this play out before? The things that are significant are, I mean, this is an exogenous shock of, of significant proportion. Listen, we've never seen this before. We have people working in different offices. What is liquidity? How do people interface with one another? And that is really uncertain. So, you know, we've got to work through that part of it. But I think what Bob said is right. It's not a, it's not a leverage problem per se. And the other thing that I think is significant about this one, and part of why we'll talk about you need that coordination, you need fiscal policy. The markets are not going to stabilize until you have something tangible from a fiscal policy point of view. Listen, the economy up to this point, and it's different regionally. Europe was still, I would argue, more abundant in terms of, in terms of growth. But the U.S. economy was actually surprisingly this late in whatever, whatever business cycle there is was particularly strong. You look at hiring. You look at where we were from a housing point of view. Uh, retail sales was good. And even, even manufacturing was, was doing okay in a secular decline. Now it's like, how do you get from here to there? And how do you get to the other side? Listen, I'm more enthusiastic about, I agree with Bob said, there's going to be some permanent tail to it, particularly in the credit markets. But this is something, we've got to bridge what is a really deep uh, slowdown in the economy. And you have some sense that particularly Asia, particularly China and the U.S., there is some real vibrancy of those economies. We just got a bridge from here to there, and, the, and that is uncertain how we get there. Bob, are you worried that the markets are not responding in ways you might have expected? We had last week the Fed cut 50 basis points. Markets went down. They didn't like it at all. This week we had the Fed step up on liquidity and inject liquidity. Initially they reacted, and then they came off again. Are you worried that maybe the buttons that we're pushing are not getting the reaction we would expect? Y yes and no. So I think it's a tale of, of two sides. I, I completely agree with what Rick said, is what we need more than anything right now, if, if we're correct that the near-term impact on the economy is going to be severe, we need fiscal stimulus, and particularly in Europe. Having said that, um, I think what the ECB and the Bank of England have done uh, in terms of providing liquidity, making sure banks have money to lend, particularly in Europe, where the banks are nowhere near as healthy as they are in the U.S., um, more asset uh, acquisition programs, and uh, in the case of the U.K., 
um, uh, both uh, Governor Carney and incoming Governor Bailey uh, have uh, reduced uh, one of the buffers so that banks have more uh, capital to lend to small businesses. So being focused on getting the right fiscal stimulus in the right areas and getting bipartisan support is critical. Okay, we are going to be back with our contributors Bob Diamond and Rick Reeder coming up. Can the central banks save us again? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. ECB President Christine Lagarde is in the middle of a full-blown crisis just four months into her job, with investors and businesses counting on her to avoid the worst of the economic damage to come from the coronavirus. So she announced a stimulus package this week, including 120 billion euros in quantitative easing over the rest of the year and ramping up liquidity and lending capacity, but leaving rates where they were. In this week's Contributors Take, Stephanie Flanders, Bloomberg's senior executive editor for economics, takes us through the highs and the lows. Christine Lagarde was very calm and deliberate in her press conference, which was a very uh, unusual one to look at because the room was half empty. I think most of the reporters who were normally there had either not been able to travel to Frankfurt or were working from home and were submitting many of their questions uh, online. But the president of the European Central Bank announced what she called a surgical, comprehensive set of measures to help the Eurozone economy through the impact of the coronavirus. There was a big new long-term lending program for banks, ideally uh, aimed at them helping small and medium-sized businesses affected by the virus. Uh, along with that, there was some word from the regulator side of the ECB that they were going to soften up some of their regulation of banks, perhaps to, to make those banks more relaxed about the impact that that help for small and medium-sized businesses might have on their balance sheets. And you had an expansion of QE, of the uh, bond purchasing program of the European Central Bank, which we think will be oriented towards corporate lending, corporate debt, not uh, government bonds. What you clearly didn't see uh, was the ECB follow the Fed and the Bank of England in cutting the key policy rate, uh, which is already, though, at minus 0.5%. That was possibly because they didn't think that would make much difference. Uh, I think also they would point to the fact that the interest rate on that new lending for banks was actually going to be below the policy rate. It's going to be a quarter of a point below 0.5%. So in a sense, the rate uh, has been cut for that kind of lending. It just hasn't been extended to the rest of the Eurozone economy. You know, investors we saw were not, were not overwhelmed uh, initially by what the ECB had announced, but actually Christine Lagarde herself said the ECB was not the only uh, actor uh, in this story. What was going to be crucial, she repeated, was a coordinated fiscal effort from Eurozone governments to confront this crisis. And I think we've seen that generally, the idea that it, we have to see not just that the grown-ups are in charge, if you like, but that they're really in top of, on top of the kind of micro measures uh, and expenditures that are going to be needed to help cushion the blow of this crisis. Uh, we've seen that a bit from Italy. Uh, the UK had the good luck this week to have a budget schedule for this week, so we've seen a lot of quite decisive fiscal action from the UK. From other governments, and specifically from Germany, not so much. That was a contributor's take from Bloomberg's Stephanie Flanders. We are back now with Bob Diamond and Rick Reeder for more of our roundtable discussion. So, Rick, this was not a bazooka, the word you used, or not shock and awe, some people were doing. Is it enough? So I think, I, I think we're beyond the idea of monetary policy comes to save the day. I mean, I, I think 
people compare this to the 80s or 90s when interest rates were significantly higher. When you move rate down, you can have a real effect. There's not, interest rates are not symmetric when you reach the lower bound. When you get to zero, you hurt pension funds, insurance companies, individuals when you get to negative interest rates. So what Christine Lagarde did, there were some benefits there. The TLTRO was good. You're getting at targeted lending, which I think is a big deal. Listen, I think what she said is right. This has got to get to the fiscal side. This has got to get the only way you're going to get velocity in the system. You need to get innovation. You need to get equity investment, and fiscal will do that. So, uh, Bob, you worked over in London. You know the London system very well. Did they show everybody the way it's supposed to be done this week? Because they had the Bank of England come up with a rate cut, and they brought out their budget at the same time. It seemed to be quite coordinated. Uh, I thought that the response from the Bank of England and the joint uh, presentation from Governor Carney and Governor-elect Bailey was uh, very thoughtful, um, very effective. I think it, well, I think it will be very effective. Um, and um, I think both um, uh, allowing one of the buffers uh, to be removed from the banks so that they can get more lending into the real economy, uh, I thought their liquidity measures. Um, and if you think back to the financial crisis in 2008, those types of things weren't done at that time. So I think it is helpful, but I'll come back to the point Rick and I have been making, and now Christine Lagarde, um, we need fiscal stimulus as well. What about the backing off on some of the reserve requirements of the banks? Because the, the <clears> Bank of <throat> England also yeah. did that. There's talk about yeah. that here as well. I mean, everybody think, th- I think thinks it was a good thing in 2008 what we did, make the yep. banks stronger. Yep. We need them right now, but should we be backing off some for the time being? Yeah, I mean, the regulatory dynamic is really significant. You think about what happened in the, uh, in the off-the-run treasury market. I've never seen that before. The bid-ask spread in some of the off-the-run treasuries was multiple points. That is, a, that is a function of the banking system getting gummed up. You look at companies that are drawn on their bank lines, et cetera. When the banks don't have the ability to get in there, you need to do that. And by the way, it can be in short-term nature. You don't need to do permanent change, but you need to bridge the dynamic where you're getting more liquidity in the system and you're getting a better functioning environment. Some regulatory relief would be really helpful. Is liquidity more important than actually the interest rate right at the moment? For example, for the Fed, are they better off really just injecting dollars into the system? 100%. And I think uh, uh, my opinion, just one of many opinions, is we used a bullet we didn't need to use with the rate cut here um, recently. Um, I don't think that uh, Governor Powell wants to go to negative interest rates. I don't think the U.K. wants to go to negative interest rates. And we used a bullet. What is really impressive is uh, the bazooka they used in the repo markets. And, you know, one of the businesses that we've invested in, South Street Securities, is an independent um, uh, broker-dealer, a non-bank holding company that does U.S. Treasury and mortgage repo. Uh, I see in that business the liquidity in the short end of the market has never been more robust, in, I think, since 2008 and 2009 than it is now. As you'll recall, David, that during um, Dodd-Frank, there were changes to open market operations that the New York Fed uh, could operate in. And a lot of that is being um, um, kind of taken back a little bit. And we're seeing much more activity from the Fed uh, to ensure that liquidity in the repo markets. And I think, you know, for the functioning of the short end of the curve, I think it's enormously helpful. And I think you're spot on. I think that's been more important than than the rate cut. So the Fed did act this week to inject some liquidity, but was it enough? It, yes. I mean, that was... That it was, was a bazooka. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was awe-inspiring in terms of the amount they did. And listen, when you put that sort of liquidity in, you know, you were starting to see pressures in the mortgage market. 
Listen, the mortgage market, when you bring interest rates down, mortgage rates are supposed to come down in a parallel way, if not more so. Mortgage rates actually were moving higher. Why was that the case? The system is gummed up. You needed to provide better funding, which, was, which happened. You need to provide better liquidity. And the other thing that I don't think people consider enough, when you put liquidity in the system, it takes pressure off the dollar. We operate in a global financial system. When you take pressure off the dollar, it, take, it makes it easier for emerging markets. It lets emerging markets go and enact policy on their, on the, on their own. That is a really big deal. Liquidity gets in the system, and it's got, it's got a real velocity to it, and they addressed it, and they had to do it. But you were seeing some cracks in the mechanism, and you can't buy other assets. You can't buy equities. You can't buy credit until the core asset, the risk-free rate, is solved. And, and it's, the, it's the number one use of collateral in the world. It's what we build. I always call it the fan of dispersion. Until you know where the risk-free rate is, I can't build my models to how do I think about all the way down to equity. And, and so you have to fix that asset, and they did. Okay, we're going to be back with our contributors. This is Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The one thing everyone seems to agree on is the ultimate source of the market turmoil. It's that we don't know how or when the coronavirus crisis will end. Most immediately, we need a treatment such as the Gilead Ebola drug that they're trying out right now in Washington. But ultimately, it's a vaccine that the world needs, and that is going to take some time. Although this is the fastest we have ever gone from a sequence of a virus to a trial, it still would not be any applicable to the epidemic unless we really wait about a year to a year and a half. But 18 months seems an awfully long time to wait right now, which leads some to ask whether a combination of science and technology could get us there faster. Welcome now someone who's trying to do just that. Dave Turek is Vice President of Technical Computing, IBM Cognitive Systems, and he joins us now for a second opinion on what could be done about the coronavirus. So Dave, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you. So explain to us exactly what's being done, what's IBM's role in this thing, how could we actually maybe get a vaccine a bit sooner? So the largest supercomputer in the world is the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, uh, constructed by IBM. And this system has a capability of merging concepts of artificial intelligence with standard mathematical representations of problems. So what we do is when we look at the possibilities of efficacious treatment for something like corona or looking for a virus, what you want to do is you want to follow a lot of different paths because you don't know which path will be the one that pays off. So in particular, at Oak Ridge, they've looked at 8,000 different compounds. And with a supercomputer, they've culled that down to 77 compounds in just two days. So those 77 compounds then go into a wet lab where they begin doing the experimentation on it to see if they work or not. So, so how do you get from there to a vaccine? I mean, are you basically understanding the mechanism by which the virus works? It's, it's a variety of things done in concert. So you look at things sort of in our time, you know, a second, a minute, a day. But a lot of the modeling goes on at extraordinarily small pieces of time, 10 to the minus 14, <laughs> you know, at atomic level, atomic kind of clock speed. And you begin to build up your understanding of the systems by operating, simulating things at every one of those time steps, then aggregating them up to clock time, where we're generally used to, and then looking at that over days, weeks, et cetera tremendous amount of compute power. That's just a molecule by itself. Then you look at it in concert with the disease. Then you look at it in concert with the human uh, organism. And you begin to look at the interplay of all these factors to understand what the probabilities are of having a successful event. Has this ever been done before? 
So yes, in fact, IBM worked um, with some of the uh, previously emergent new strains of flu. Uh, the last uh, H1N1 thing I think that came out of Mexico, we used our technology at that time to do some modeling of the evolutionary pathway of that. So if you look at flu viruses and the flu shots that you get every fall, it's a matter of looking scientifically at what's going on, but also predictively at how that virus will evolve over the course of time. And you take a shot at where the puck is going to be, and then you build your virus for that and hope for the best. So it's a complicated mathematical construct that you need to examine. So, so I won't hold you to this, because mm -hmm. I'm sure there's no knowable answer to it. But in success, if it worked perfectly, could you take time off that 18 months? And if so, how much? I think there... I think there are a couple of ways to look at this. One is, in the absence of the computer, you're basically throwing um, darts at a dartboard in the dark. <laughs> and so you don't know if you're even close to the target. So what we've done is we've winnowed that down quite dramatically. So now the lights are on, you know where the dartboard is, you know what the darts are in your hand, and you can start taking a shot at it. That's a tremendous advantage for the scientists that are working on this. The 18 month is, a lot of it is human trials and so on, mm. so it's not going to do so much to compress that time span, but what it has done is it's really accelerated the starting step. So instead of waiting for a year to come up, or two years, or three years, with that set of 77, we've got it in a couple of days. That's a big step forward. Who owns this technology? Who owns the IP in this? So, so the IP is all being generated by the scientists involved. Um, the Power9 technology, which underscores a computer, is all IBM. Mm -hmm. The ownership of the system is Oak Ridge National Lab is an agent for the Department of Energy. Have you tried this for other medical applications besides viruses? You said you did it with the H1N1 uh, Mexico. Are you trying it with other medical applications? Yeah, we have, we have a group called Watson Health inside of IBM that looks at the amalgamation of artificial intelligence techniques with uh, technologies like Power9 to bring that to bear on a variety of problems, whether it's cancer or other kinds of uh, medical issues. The same technology, though, has been used in the industrial sector. It's used for fintech. It's used for the design of airplanes, cars, um, problems in computational chemistry. And one of the very rich areas is material science. Material science percolates through our economy. And the ability to understand how these different materials are working and how to invent new materials is a critical dimension to how you drive the economy forward. Same technology can be used for that. Really fascinating. Good luck on the coronavirus. I hope Thank it you. works for all of our sakes. Okay, thanks now to Dave Turk of IBM. If you missed an episode of Bloomberg Wall Street Week, full episodes are now available on YouTube, the Bloomberg Terminal, and on Bloomberg.com. This is Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there.
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The coronavirus didn't just hit stocks and bonds, it hit oil prices as well, as markets anticipated a demand shock emanating out of China. And then OPEC tried to do something about it, publicly calling out Russia for production cuts it hadn't agreed to. Russia declined, and Saudi Arabia declared a price war that took oil prices down the most since 2008. We're joined now by a Wall Street Week contributor who did her graduate work on energy at Oxford and worked at Shell before going on to the World Bank, Carlisle, and then founding her own firm, Rock Creek Group. She comes to us today from Washington, and then is Afsani Beshlas. Afsani, great to have you with us. Thanks for being with us. So give us a sense for your take. Just stick with Russia and, uh, and Saudi Arabia now. What happened? It was all at war. And normally with OPEC, when you have these kinds of statements, Somebody backs off really quickly within 24 to 48 hours. So what happened uh, this week was highly unusual. And when you couple that with everything else that uh, we've been talking about today, it is truly all-out war. So it's not just an oil war. It's like an all-out war on the economy. And the amount of money that got taken out for oil producers with this uh, shock, with oil prices going down to the 20s and now sort of hovering around the low 30s, has not really happened, as you said, for a very long time. Afsani, who was shooting at whom in this war? Was it Russia shooting at Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia shooting at Russia, or was Russia shooting at the United States? So it was supposed to be both of them shooting at the United States, trying to kill the shale business in the U.S. once and for all. And it's interesting, given the timing they chose, two things I think are important. One, will this be the worst time in the U.S. economy that might lead actually some protection of our own shale industry, which might not have happened if they had done it at a different time? And two, it has caused a major falling out, at least to the eyes of the beholder, between uh, two great autocrats in the world. So it is, you know... Not clear who's going to blink first. Uh, it seems like neither is going to blink. The other group that was supposed, the other country that was supposed to really get hurt was, of course, Iran, which already um, is in a very bad situation. But I think there's always been a subsidiary uh, effort to kill that oil industry as well. But I think the main eff- main effort was to get the shell industry to basically kill over. So. Um Afsan is the expert. I loved <laughs> listening to this. I think from someone who's not an expert in that area and outside watching this, um, you know, you kind of have the impression that you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> we have this crisis in the world right now around corona- coronavirus, and we have exactly. this political game going on between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Russia with profound implications on economies around the world. You just can't make this exactly. stuff up. What happens to the shale producers, Afsana, if it was targeted at them? I mean, you really see them under an awful lot of financial stress and strain right now. A lot of them were leveraged. You saw some of the yields, high yield yields, really blow out there. Uh, so what happens to the shale producers? 
Exactly. So they already were over leveraged. And I think this is, uh, this is a huge problem for them. And that is why what happens with some sort of assistance through credit markets to the biggest shell producers will be really key to keeping them up and alive. At the same time, I think as Bob is saying, what is really interesting is why would uh, Russia and, uh, and Saudi Arabia do this at this time? The second thing that is very unusual at this time, by the way, is that normally when you have such a big oil price shock to the downside, you have people driving more, you have people using more energy, and you have emerging markets and oil importers actually have a big uptick in their stock or in their currency. Given the crisis that's going on, we're not seeing any of those. So it's not just the shell producers that are hurting, but it's really the global economy. So I think when you think about credit, David, um, and I mentioned this earlier in the show, that the proliferation of credit since the crisis with lower interest rates, QE1, QE2, um, what we have seen is a doubling of the amount of leveraged loans outstanding today. It's, it's something like $1.3 trillion. Uh, there's four times as much triple B, the lowest rated uh, uh, bonds uh, out in the market. And I think we've been wondering what, what is the match that will, that will kind of start this and um, what's happening to the economy as a result of coronavirus might be that. And I think one of the fault lines is going to be in the energy sector, particularly the energy sector in the U.S. As Afsana said, um, that's where leverage is very high. And that's where the, the business prospects and the cash flows are dropping most quickly. So uh, we happen to think uh, that um, um, we're going to see um, uh, quite, uh, uh, quite lower values in uh, uh, below investment grade debt across U.S. dollar corporate market, uh, but particularly in energy. So normally when you have that, Bob, there's a shakeout. Bankruptcies, let's be yeah. frank, what happens. Right. And the assets go up for sale. Yeah. Are the majors in a place to come in and buy some of that up, Bob? I think, I think what we're going to have to see is, is significant consolidation. And um, uh, otherwise, we're going to see a number of bankruptcies. But one of those two things is going to happen. And I do think that the, the majors are very, very healthy right now. So do they have the capacity from a, from a capital structure point of view? Yes. Do they have the willingness? Um, I'm not enough of an expert in that sector to know. So, Afsana, you are. Yeah, What's going to happen? Well, well, I think two things. One is that um, the other people that are getting hurt and will get hurt even more are people who lent to the shale industry. So there's not going to really be um, sort of a, any silver lining for them. Um, I agree that there might be some, there will be consolidation. It may not necessarily be the big oil majors because the oil majors just before this happened have been trying to diversify their sources of energy away from oil and gas and away from hydrocarbons into more renewable energy. So it will be really interesting as they weigh the cost of shell versus the cost of uh, renewable energy, which way they go. But most of them are starting to call themselves energy companies versus oil and gas companies. So that's something interesting to watch. So, Sonny, you've been in the forefront of that move. Uh, you've been very outspoken about that. Uh, what effects might this oil price war, particularly if it continues for any period of time, have on that dynamic? Does that put off the date for people to invest in the renewables? I actually think that process is um, sort of ongoing. You had $1.6 trillion go into renewables um, since 2016, another maybe $10 trillion going in over the next few years. 
And what is, uh, I think the forces of renewable energy is one reason that we have seen as oil prices have gone down, they don't bounce back. You remember when we had the incident with the refinery in in, uh, Saudi Arabia, oil prices went up, but then they really did go down pretty fast right after. The forces that are at play between the forces um, that climate change has created, as well as uh, the geopolitical issues that we're seeing right now in front of us, as well as having had a really nice uh, weather winter season, all of them are forcing the oil producers to really panic. So I think looking forward, it's going to be much less focus on oil and gas and um, at least oil and maybe more focus on natural gas, including local U.S. natural gas and shale gas, as well as renewables. Bob, can we afford the United States to lose the shale industry? I mean, not to say we'd lose it altogether, but I mean, going back into history in 1986, then Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush went to the Saudis and said, you can't let the price go too low because you'll wipe out my domestic industry. We have President Trump just this week saying, you know what, low gas prices, that's a good thing. That's like a tax cut. He sort of likes it. You know, I think Asana brought up the right, the right issue, which is, you know, the majors have the capital to take part in that, but they don't have the willingness for all the reasons that she, she spoke on uh, so well. Um, I think, secondly, um, the, the, um, you know, when you look at the impact of this on the uh, high-yield bonds or the mm-hmm. corporate bonds that support so many of those activities, the banks just don't have the capacity because of capital ru- rules that were introduced post-2008 to really be part of the solution. So what we're going to need is we're going to need private capital, which is targeted uh, for this area, or some kind of a government program. I doubt we're going to see a government program in this in this area. So it's really about private capital. Bob, don't you think at this time they might consider a government program again for these geopolitical reasons, you know, just to be in um, this situation, a war created by the Saudis and the Russians at the most inopportune time? Don't you think if the circumstances um, were different, obviously, there would be no chance of a government bailout? But don't you see the government playing a bigger role and trying to make us energy sufficient, self-sufficient? So your thinking is that because the, the, the origin of this was the political uh, battles happening between Saudi Arabia and Russia, it gives the government uh, a chance. And, and I see exactly. your point. Yeah, I see your point. Okay, many thanks to Wall Street Week contributor Afsani Beshlas coming to us from Washington. Thank you so much to Bob Diamond. This has been another edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. See you next week. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.